Hi, welcome to Gaze Ahead. Today, we have the pleasure of listening to a conversation with none other than Professor Catherine Sanderson, who is a world-renowned professor, author, speaker, and thought leader on subjects including happiness, success, emotional intelligence, parenting, and the bystander effect. She is a busy, busy lady. She has bachelor's, master's, and doctoral psychology degrees from both Stanford University and Princeton University. I really enjoyed her book, The Positive Shift. It lays out the science of happiness with 100% research-backed studies. And in the episode, we talk about happiness itself, happiness-inducing behaviors and tricks to find meaning in today's complicated world. We talk about secret gifts like adversity and how they can increase your happiness if you have the right mindset. And we also talk about how mindset can affect the aging process, which is, again, research-backed. This is a really densely packed conversation. You may want to listen to this on 1x speed so that you don't miss any of the gems. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Catherine, I am so thrilled to meet you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for this opportunity to talk. My absolute pleasure. So we touched on this a little bit already, you and I, but I, what attracted me to your work, one of the main things that attracted to me to your work was the research-based approach that you take to happiness, that you take to success. And, and so this is not an opinion piece, this book, The Positive Shift. This is very much a dense read um, research-backed and, and tangible, actionable items. Can you tell me a little bit about the process? What brought you to write this book? What inspired you to do this work? So great question. And so I, I talk very candidly from the beginning of the book that I am not someone who is a naturally happy person. So people often think, oh, well, you wrote this book. You must be you know, super optimistic. And I'm really not. I have a family history of depression, of anxiety, of bipolar disorder. And so I have spent most of my life not being a particularly happy person. But I also have this nerdy job as a professor. And so I also was always sort of reading reading the research and talking about issues related to health psychology and relationships. And what became clear in the field of psychology over about the last, frankly, decade or so is that we have a tremendous opportunity to actually change our thoughts and behaviors in ways that can make us feel happier and also healthier. And so my goal in writing this book was really to take this nerdy, empirical scientific research and to present it in ways that everyday people could enjoy, could benefit from, and really could use to improve their own lives. Mm, making it accessible. Making it accessible. Absolutely. Fantastic. I've heard, in one of your talks, I heard you say happiness is largely about the power of effort. What does that mean? <laughs> There's, there's a wonderful quote by the author, Elizabeth Gilbert, that really describes this in terms of the choice that we have to make, that I think many of us think, well, happiness is something that happens at random to people if they're lucky or they have good genes or an optimistic parent or they win the lottery or whatever. But the reality is for most people, happiness involves choice. You have to decide you want to be happy. You have to decide you deserve to be happy. And you have to be willing to structure your life so that you are actually spending time doing things that make you happy. I think many of us 
sort of go through our to-do list every single day. And we're not really prioritizing, okay, how can I be happy today? What are things that I can do today, right now, not in the future, not in the distance, not once I retire, once I whatever, but right now, what are things that I can do? And once we decide to make that effort, the good news is there's lots of empirical research that points in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. So people have to make the choice. And you said the words decide that they deserve. That sounds really dense. You know, decide. I think that might be the crux of it is some people don't actually think that they deserve to be happy. Maybe yeah. something from their past. Now we're not, I'm not a psychologist. I won't speak about you, but, but the idea that, um, you know, you have to actually believe that you deserve it first before you're actually find it in within your reach is something that I find really interesting. That's such an important point. And, and I do think for some people, they think that happiness isn't attainable for them, that, that they won't be happy, that that's not something doable for them. Maybe they haven't lived their lives thus far. They haven't seen models of that in their environment. And, and I think in some senses, people sort of think of happiness as a luxury, you know, that I have to do these things, you know, I have to earn money, I have to pay the bills, et cetera and that happiness is frivolous. But what we in fact know now is that people who are happy are more effective in their jobs. They're better to work for, they're better to work with, they have better relationships, they have better health. And so prioritizing happiness and deciding that happiness is worth prioritizing is in fact really fundamental. Absolutely. It's not the end goal. It's something that is within reach every day if we decide that it is to your point. Interesting. So can you tell us again, tangible, getting really actionable here? What are some behaviors? If we could really boil it down, somebody who's listening and saying, well, it feels out of reach. I don't know. Um, What are some behaviors that have been proven to make us happier? Yeah. I love that question because the reality is there in fact are specific things that we can do. Now, before I tell you the answer and don't worry, I am going to tell you the answer. I also always like to preface it by saying that happiness is not one size fits all. And I say that because I think sometimes people feel pressure to look for happiness in the way that works for someone they know. The the comment that I hear most often is people say, don't tell me to meditate. And and (laughs) what the research will say is that meditation in fact is good But if meditation doesn't resonate with you, then don't meditate. And so I say that because for some people, a certain thing is going to lead to happiness that may not work for their sister, their spouse, their colleague, their neighbor, their friend. So I'm going to give you a few and I'm going to give you three because three is very tangible. Um, One, spending time in nature. And I know that you are speaking to me from a beautiful part of the world. So this should be one that's very easy for you uh, to do. But overwhelmingly research shows that spending time in nature leads to better happiness and better health. And that doesn't have to be moving to a beautiful part of the country. It can be something as simple as making a point of walking outside for 15, 20 minutes through a park at your lunch hour at the end of work. So spending time in nature in some way is really beneficial. Two, giving. And what I love about the giving advice is that anything counts. So this could be donating money to a favorite charity. It could be doing a random act of kindness for a stranger. It could be giving a little gift to a friend. It could be donating blood. All of this, oh, it could be donating time. It could be volunteering for an organization that you resonate with. So giving is overwhelmingly beneficial. And then the third one that I'll say, and I say this last because it's most important, good relationships. Building good relationships is the single best predictor of happiness. 
And these can be relationships with family members, with friends, with neighbors, with colleagues, but having real and authentic relationships in which you can have meaningful conversation, it's the single best predictor of happiness. Mm, I love that. I'm going to tie all three back to business. Right. Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to try. You can help me. Oh, no, you um, can. You absolutely can. Absolutely. You know, this idea of nature, one of the things that I think is really, really interesting and different, and this kind of came came out during COVID when we were all stuck indoor by ourselves or outdoor together is walking meetings. So the idea of getting together with a colleague and saying, hey, why don't we actually go for a walk and chat through this? You know, we don't need our screens today. We don't need to sit and stare at each other on a screen. Let's meet at a park and walk. You know, I had I had one of those the other day and we just met at a, a city park and it was it's one of the most memorable meetings and we we got really creative together this other person and I so if it's a one-on-one meeting outside great mm-hmm. that's that's the nature piece mm-hmm. giving um one of the things you actually write about this in your book which I love is going old school and writing a thank you note in the workplace yes. right it's like yes. it sounds it sounds so simple <laughs> but actually holding a note in your hand that somebody has written for you to say thank mm-hmm. uh, is something that actually stands out these days it might not have in the 60s but these days that's a standout action mm-hmm. and the third one is relationships like you said and so at work the idea of yeah really building human relationships not just working relationships but getting to know the other person and enjoying them as a whole person at work. Mm -hmm. So I love that. And that, oh my gosh, can increase happiness. Who knew? (laughs) And I'll also, I'll, I'll add one, which in fact, you also actually just alluded to another key finding in the literature is that exercise exercise is a strong predictor of happiness. And so your idea of the walking meeting is actually hitting like a bunch of them, right? Because it's exercise. It's low level exercise, but it's exercise. It's also in nature. So if you do it outside and it's also building relationships. So when you walk with someone, you're also talking, you're connecting. And so all of those together, in fact, would, would be hitting like many of the different little yeah. pieces of finding happiness, right? Here we go, guys. Yeah. Walking meetings, do it. Walking meetings, that's it. <laughs> Love it. Um, One of the things that you said in your book really resonated with me and it got me thinking, this is part of the piece I had to pause and go have a chat with a few people. I think it was a quote around the comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah, that's it. That really hit me because I noticed in reading that and thinking about it, that I am 100% of the time comparing myself to other people or comparing my work to other people's or comparing my mothering to other mothers. Like it's, I feel pretty healthy and happy, but I compare so much. Is that just a human trait or have we been conditioned in this way? I don't know. What does the research say? (laughs) Yeah. So it's two things. So one, it is part of a human trait and that's because we often get a sense of who we are by comparing. So if I tell you I ran a mile in 10 minutes I don't have any idea what that means. Is that really fast? Is that really slow? So what we do naturally is called social comparison. And that is we get a sense of, okay, well, well, how fast am I compared to you? If, if you get a grade on a test and you say, well, I got an 85, that could be a really bad grade or it could be a really good grade depending on how other people did. Um, if I ask how much you make, people compare their salary. Well, you know, I think I make enough or wait, but no, that person makes a whole lot more. And so part of this comparison is a sense of, of how we figure out how we're doing. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, the challenge is there is so much more comparison now 
because of the presence of the internet and social media. So I have three children. And what I always say to them is I feel lucky that I am old enough that when I was in high school, I never had to see pictures of parties I wasn't invited to. And, and that the reality is that social media right now has made it that it's much easier to compare how you're doing compared to how other people are doing. So people post about, you know, my office is like, look at my wonderful view from my office, or, you know, I have this, you know, great view or this really big space or, you know, oh, I just took this trip to Tahiti and look how great this was, you know, and so on. So part of it is, is that it's much easier to compare now because of the presence of the internet. Mm. So you're saying comparison is inherent. Yes. We're kind of conditioned that way. We're level setting socially, naturally, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the the volume of information that we have access to now is like comparison on overload. <laughs> well, yes, a- absolutely. It's comparison mm-hmm. on overload. But the other thing, which I think is really important, and this is, I think, the hazard of social media is that when we're comparing, we're only comparing to what people are choosing to tell us, right? And so we are looking at, for example, on social media, people's highlight reels. So people are much more likely to say, here's this picture in which I look really good. And, you know, my house is clean and my, you know, whatever, or I'm going to talk about a success at work. So on LinkedIn, people overwhelmingly are like, I'm so honored to announce, I just got this award. (laughs) I'm so proud to announce I've just been promoted to such and such. And so people talk about the good and what they don't talk about is when things go poorly. I just got fired. I, I applied for this job and I didn't get it. So you and I are connecting in part because I wrote this book, The Positive Shift. This book was rejected by multiple publishers, by multiple agents before I found a home for it and a publisher who loved it, resonated with it and, and published it. But so people look at it as, oh, you know, this is a professor and she published this book, but I don't talk about yeah, it was like really demoralizing and really discouraging as I kept getting rejections and I had to kind of pick myself up and and keep trying. And so I think one of the challenges is that when we're comparing, we often aren't comparing to what's maybe happening behind the scenes that people aren't comfortable sharing about or talking about. We're not getting the whole story. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And And it's hard to remember that when we're mm-hmm. in the act of comparison. I think it's kind of a an unconscious act mm-hmm. a little bit. People aren't going on social media to feel crappy. They're going on social media to catch up and mm-hmm. to get their little laughs or whatever, but you don't go on social media to end feeling awful, but mm-hmm. it's natural. It's it's happening. You know, you're, you're comparing too much. So yeah. So go for a walk and turn off social media. Those are the two tips for the- <laughs> <laughs> well, or Or use social media- or use social media to have authentic connections. So one mm. example that I that I really like is on Mother's Day, my mother died about 19 years ago. And Mother's Day on social media used to be brutally hard for me because I would go on and everybody would say, I'm at brunch with my mother and best mother ever. And it would just make me feel alone and sad. And what I started doing was actually posting a picture of my mom or me and my mom together and say and saying on social media, this is a really hard day for me. This is a really hard day for me because I'm missing my mom. So I was being my authentic self, which was not, you know, happy and lovely. But what I found was that so many people then reached out to me and said, 
Hey, I'm thinking about you, or I've also lost my mom. This is also a hard day for me. Or let me tell you a funny story about your mom that I remember. And so I also think that we can use social media to be our authentic selves in which people can sometimes really get support from that and get connection of, you know, Hey, I've been fired too. Or, Hey, I remember a time in which I went for this promotion and I didn't get it and you can pick yourself back up or, you know, so on. And so I also think it's the case that we can use social media in ways that make us feel better or ways that make us feel worse. It's up to us. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. And it does take a little bit of courage and vulnerability to, be that unique voice, you know, mm-hmm. call mm-hmm. it 1% of what you see right, right. now is authentic and mm-hmm. social. So that's, that's impactful for me. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to talk about meaning because meaning is something like finding our meaning as humans, as in our careers, for example, or, you know, in, in life, it's something that is a feeling it, and so I just wanted to unpack if you found anything around that with empirical research or with respect to finding our meaning or little ways that we can find our meaning. Mm-hmm. I, I love that question. I'm actually going to share with you a story that's not even in the book. This is like a more sort of updated research example, but I really like it. And it has to do with the workplace. So what they did in the study, it was done by economists. They asked people who all had the same job to describe how much they liked their job and what their job was. Now, in this study, all of the people with this had the same job. And the job was they were janitors. They were custodians in a hospital. So literally, they mopped floors, you know, they cleaned bathrooms, they washed windows, they changed bedsheets. So they all have the same job, but people described their job in very different ways. Some people said, yeah, my job is pretty bad. I, you know, mop and I, you know, clean toilets and I wash windows. It's not that good. And other people said, I love my job. It's really meaningful. And here's how these people described it. They said, I'm in charge of keeping a sterile environment in a hospital to prevent infection and disease. I am an important source of emotional support for patients and their families at a difficult time. I am an important part of the healthcare team. I am a conduit to the nursing staff where I can say, this patient needs more food, or this patient needs to see a doctor, or this patient needs water, or whatever it is. I'm an important part of the healthcare team. So what I love about that study is it really talks about the power of mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone had the same job, but some people thought about their job as being low level and unimportant. And some people thought about their job as full of meaning and impact and it mattered. And and to me, what that example really speaks to is the power we all have to think about our jobs in particular ways and to find the meaning, to find the bigger purpose and therefore to feel greater satisfaction, greater internal motivation. And of course, to do that job better, right? Love that. Um, Mindset is so, so powerful. And I was thinking about meaning in a, in a sense as well of the end goal or what is my life? What does it all mean? And, you know, a lot of people join clean tech startups because of the meaning of the, um, I am going to make an impact on the planet in a positive way. And so that can in and of itself really create, you know, a guiding light. But to your point, if we unpack that and make it into a mindset and to an internalize that a little bit. And then find, I'll call them micro meanings, right? Every day, you know, this, this matters and this matters and this matters of what I do. That could be a really great way to overcome that, that sense of dissatisfaction that frankly, a lot of my peers have, 
not just in the startup industry, but my, you know, my, my colleagues or my friends, people are feeling this like undercurrent of, I need more meaning in my job, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but perhaps it's just unpacking and finding micro meanings. I love that. That is really cool. You talk a little bit about this, is, this one, this one also, I had to like scratch my head and think about, about embracing <laughs> adversity. <laughs> that one's kind of, you know, loaded because <laughs> adversity kind of sucks some days, you know, adversity is tough. Anything tough in your life, some adversity is really, really impactful and can really change your life. Mm-hmm. And your life's trajectory, other adversity, other, you know, acts in your life or instances in your life might be smaller and not affect you as much. But let's talk about adversity and just for all of our struggling entrepreneurs out there or people working their butts off that are looking for fi- easier ways to find happiness. Tell us a little bit about what the research says about adversity and how it can help us. So what I think is so important to recognize about this research is that we don't want bad things to happen, right? As you just said, adversity is not fun. So we don't want adverse things to happen to us, to our, to our families, to our loved ones, of course. But the reality is adversity gives us a chance to practice skill development. So you learn, okay, how do I bounce back after I don't get that promotion I wanted or after I lose this client uh, or after I apply for a job and I'm not selected or somebody else is promoted above me that you know I think it should have gone to me. So the question is, how do we learn how to bounce back from that? Mm-hmm. And the reality is we learn from experiencing negative things. A fascinating study that I talk about in the book asked people about how many negative things they'd experienced in the last year. And these could be negative things in your job, like, you know, getting fired, but they could also be things in your personal life, having a divorce, having a miscarriage, you know, again, some kind of health crisis. And what they found was that people who'd experienced between two and six adverse events actually felt higher levels of happiness than people who'd experienced no adversity or just one bad thing. So what that research tells us is that experiencing a little bit of adversity actually probably impacts you in positive ways. And what the research suggests is three things. One, a little adversity maybe helps you stop and smell the roses, right? So sort of take appreciation for day-to-day life. Two, it probably helps you feel greater empathy for other people. When you've gone through some stuff, maybe you're a better boss, you know, colleague, friend. And then three, as we've talked about, It probably gives you some important skills and resilience so that when other difficult things happen, you've kind of worked that muscle and you're better able to step up and master that new challenge. So resilience comes with experience with adversity. This got me thinking about parenting (laughs) for all those shout out to all you parents out there (laughs) that are helicopter parents or that really don't want your child to suffer in any way, shape or form. Just remember these wise words that adversary creates resilience in small doses. I think that's such an important, right. I think that's such an important connection because again, as a mom, I, you know, I want to protect my kids from anything bad happening, but the reality is then you're also depriving them of opportunities to learn and grow. Yeah. And become resilient so -hmm. that they bounce back to your Mm -hmm. point much faster. Yes. I like that. I like that. I was thinking about adversity when toxic adversity. So 
we just talked about like adversity being really good in small doses for lots of research-based reasons. But I also wanted to talk about a little bit about quitting. You know, the idea of when is it okay to say this is too much and I'm going to make a choice to make a change. You know, I had a conversation just earlier today with a CEO of a startup who, um, you know, basically when I dug a little deeper and deeper, I realized, oh, she might be done. You know, she might be she might be done. I mean, she just got going and, and I haven't raised any money yet. It's just kind of still in the idea stage, but just it's hard. And so she, you know, that idea that adversity to a certain point is healthy, but you also have to have that North star within yourself to understand, you know, when is it okay to actually say, I'm going to stop now. I'm not going to keep, you know, pushing this boulder up this steep hill. Yeah. Just a note there about it's okay to make a change <laughs> to become happier. No, no, it, it is okay to make a change. And I think part of it is that people can be in environments in over time, feel exhausted and develop burnout and burnout. We know is bad for happiness and bad for health. And so to the extent that you kind of keep saying, I'm banging my head against the wall, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not finding meaning. I'm not finding joy. I'm not finding sort of happiness in this endeavor. It doesn't mean that everything should be easy, but I think there's also real power in recognizing when enough is enough and being able to walk away. Yeah. And that also takes courage. It also takes bravery to make a change and something maybe you thought you needed to do, or you, you entered into the journey thinking the outcome would be differently, different than it is. Yeah. Yeah. So adversity in, in small doses, but also having that internal compass of mm -hmm. understanding when it's too much or when it's starting to affect your happiness in a way that that you can't control, for example. I was thinking about adversity too. You know, I've met some people that they choose, again, back to choice. They choose to use it, you know, they become bitter or um, they don't expect anything good to come out of their their lives after, you know, experiencing adversity. So a healthy relationship with mindset sounds like is what we all need. Interesting. And, and it's something that, again, we all can achieve, even if it doesn't come naturally to us, that it's something that we can practice. Just like if you were trying to start running, you start small and you just kind of keep practicing. So you're building this habit. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. It's a great point. Um, defining, defining words like success, you know, we were talking about happiness and a lot of people in the business world define success as not, not exactly happiness. Right. And so I'd like to challenge that, but you know, if we could, we, if we could create a more broader definition of success, perhaps we're, we're matching business success, which is easily measured with a gauge of how happy we are. And you talk a little bit about emotional intelligence and how that relates to business success in your work. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? So what the research would say very strongly is that emotional intelligence is an essential part of happiness. It's also an important part of health, but it also, and I think perhaps most relevant for your listeners, emotional intelligence is a key predictor of outstanding performance in the business world. And that includes being able to start a company. It includes how much money you make, how successful that company is by traditional measures. It includes uh, how effective you are as a leader. And so what we know from lots and lots of empirical research is that Emotional intelligence alone is not enough, but IQ alone is also not enough. And the people who have technical skills and raw intelligence, but lack sort of an ability to show empathy, get along with other people, be internally motivated, they actually don't achieve at the highest levels. 
And emotional intelligence, like happiness, is also something that we all can decide to work towards and improve and devote time and energy and effort to. But emotional intelligence absolutely is an essential ingredient of effective performance in the business world in all different kinds of industries. Absolutely. And so some people are naturally very emotionally intelligent. They're born that way. I have two kids. One is really, really emotionally intelligent. Can't get anything past her. The other one, you kind of have to like knock them on the head and remind them of how I feel or they feel or their friends. feel. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's one that has a lot of room for improvement. So, so let's talk about that building emotional intelligence. Similarly, are there any research-based behaviors or tricks that you, you could tell us about to, if I'm on the spectrum of lower emotional intelligence and I want to work on it? Yeah. So one key thing is understanding which parts of emotional intelligence are you higher or lower in. So when we talk about emotional intelligence and psychology, it actually includes having a sense of your strengths and weaknesses. So being self-aware and we all have strengths and weaknesses Uh, Two, it involves self-regulation or what we often call grit. So sort of big picture thinking three, it involves internal motivation. Again, driving for something that matters to you Four, empathy. We've talked about that. And then five, social skills, getting along with people. We all work with people. We report to people, people work to, w- report to us. We have clients, we have colleagues. So again, getting along with people. So what I tell people to start with is thinking about those five components and then thinking, okay, where are you strong and where are you weak? And then really trying to develop, okay, the things that I'm less good at is empathy or the thing that I'm less good at is self-awareness or the thing that I'm less good at is social skills. And then trying to devote some energy to paying attention to that component. We all like to focus on our strengths, right? This is what I'm so good at. So I'm going (laughs) to devote more time to it. But what we really need to do is to think about where we're not quite as strong and to devote some energy to improving that relative weakness. Mm, okay. And some of these, again, are, it sounds like you're going to have to get brave and ask for feedback because mm-hmm. yeah. you won't even, if you're not overly self-aware, then you may not have an insight into your own ability to be empathetic, or you might have not no insight into your mm-hmm. ability to, you know, social, your social skills and how that those seem to others. So listening and asking others to help you <laughs> with this data set is important. Well, and, and also, and we've talked about this before today, being willing to fail, being willing to make a mistake that I think part of the issue is that people who are emotionally intelligent understand that success isn't, isn't always just achieving, achieving, achieving success can be trying and failing and that's okay. You can come back from mistakes. That's part of, again, being emotionally intelligent is understanding this idea of resilience and it's okay to, to try. There's fascinating research showing that people tend to regret inaction, things they didn't do. Oh, I wish I had done that. Oh, I wish I'd try that. I wish I tried for that job. I wish I'd applied. And that when you ask people what their regrets are, we have far more regrets of inaction than regrets of action. So basically be willing to take a chance, be willing to put yourself out there. And yes, be willing to ask for feedback because that's how we grow. Mm, Agreed. There was a part in the project, your book that I wanted to take out and hand over to my parents. And it's about aging. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, Just the, you know, the, the database research on, on aging and, and how to, 
not slow the process, but yeah, slow the process, I guess, and change the process. And, and can you talk a little bit about mindset as it relates to physical aging? (laughs) Some of that research is just fascinating because it really illustrates the breadth and the impact of mindset. And I'll start with just a simple example, which is that we've all heard about the placebo effect, right? Like you, you know, have a headache and somebody gives you a sugar pill and you're like, oh, I had a pill. Now I feel better. Yeah. <laughs> and that is an example of mindset influencing physical health. The exact same process plays out in terms of aging. And the challenge is that in many cultures, we have these negative views about aging, right? With aging, people slow down and they get dementia and, you know, whatever. And as soon as you have these negative stereotypes or mindsets about aging, it actually creates negative outcomes. So instead, trying to think about aging as you are full of energy and wisdom and experience. And what the research tells us is that exposing older adults to positive stereotypes about aging, the potential of you know physical energy, of growth, of creativity, of wisdom, actually leads people to age better, to have fewer symptoms of dementia, uh, to have greater happiness. And in fact, some research even suggests living longer. Absolutely. That's so neat. I remember, you know, thinking about what society tells us about aging, especially in North America and hiding death and hiding aging and putting our seniors in somewhere where they're with themselves. Um, it's different than other cultures. Um, and, and I remember my mom saying to me one time, I'm having more fun with each decade and it really resonated with me. It's like, it gives, it gives you a lot of hope and it kind of explains why her vitality is so high. And just again, mindset, each decade is even better than the last forties are better than 50 or thirties. Fifties are better than forties. It's kind of a cool way to look at life. If, if you can get there in your mind. That's a wonderful example from your mom. And that is something you should like print out and post all around, right? Each decade keeps getting better. Love that. Me too. Me too. Okay. I have one more question for you and it's, it's for our leaders out there and it is about public speaking. So I'm totally changing the subject and more, this is more a personal question, not research-based. This is a question for you. You're an amazing public speaker. Can you tell us about your journey and how you felt and how you feel now? And, 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 you know, what is it, what is it like to do public speaking that seems so seamless and easy? Um, and, and how do you feel doing that? Cause I know a lot of people do a lot of public speaking and are unbelievably nervous about it. Tell us about that. <laughs> so what a, what an interesting question. And I think you're actually the first person on any podcast that has ever asked me that question. Mm-hmm. And what I will say is, is, is in fact, a theme of what we've talked about today, authenticity and courage. So I think I am effective at public speaking because I am authentic. I tell it how it is. I tell stories about my kids not succeeding. I tell stories about myself not succeeding. And and I'm very honest about that. So when I'm public speaking, you're seeing me. You're not seeing uh, idealized images of me. You're seeing me with the flaws, you know, et cetera. And I'm comfortable sharing that. But the other thing is I have had help. So I had been public speaking for probably about five years, you know, pretty effectively, And I hired a speaking coach and I said, I think I'm pretty good. I I think I'm pretty good. People like me. I'm, you know, getting booked and people are paying to have me speak, but I'd like to get better. And she said, well, are you, are you really open to feedback? And I said, I am a hundred percent open to giving feedback. And she watched a one hour video that I sent her and she came back with a page and a half of notes on how I could be better. And she said, I'm, I'm going to share with you. And I said, I would not have asked if I didn't want to get better. 
And she went through it with me and she was dead on with every single thing. And I am better now because of doing it. And so I guess I'll say that's an example of something that I thought I was pretty good. I think I was pretty good, but I am better because I had somebody give me that feedback and I could take it and I could be receptive to it. And, and I think that sort of is an example of all of the things that we've talked here about growth, about improvement, about being willing to get negative feedback, you know, from people in light of helping you grow and get better. Mm, Yeah. Back to mindset, growth mindset. mindset. Yeah. Growth mindset. Catherine, this has been an amazing conversation. I've learned a lot. Can you tell us where we can find you? If somebody wants to book you for a keynote or where to find your books, do you have a website? Can you tell us more about where to find you? Sure. Thanks for that question. So I have a website, which is sandersonspeaking.com and people can actually book me to speak there. They can actually see videos of talks that I've given and you can check out books that I've written through that site as well. So again, I love talking about psychology. I love writing about psychology and thank you for this opportunity to share. It was my absolute pleasure. I hope to have you back on, keep releasing books and we'll have an excuse to bring you back on over and over. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Catherine. So grateful for your time today. This was so much fun. Take care.